around us where evil and evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse as the Apostle Paul predicted, we need the Word of God. The Word of God that men are saying is old-fashioned, passe, is out of date, just another old Bronze Age book that we need to lay to the side and pick up more modern, more progressive thoughts and ways Because, of course, all of y'all in this room know that there's something wrong with you. You're on the wrong side of history. And we as Christians have to, from time to time, take an introspective examination of ourselves, of our faith, of our stamina, of our courage, of our focus. Because the world wants to give us an identity crisis and make us forget who we are and whose we are. And if they're able to accomplish that in the world in which we live today then they make us ineffective, ineffectual. They make us those who are not being what the Lord commanded us to be. When he sat down on that obscure hill many years ago, and he sat there and he taught the disciples who came unto him, one of the things that the Lord said that was most prominent in that lesson is, you are the light of the world. The light In the darkness that is all around us, you are the light. You illuminate others. You edify them, build them, teach them, change them, alter them. God doesn't want us to allow the world to change us. He wants us to change the world. So he says, you're the light. You're the one folks are supposed to see, and they see me in you. You're the ones that they watch your walk and they find out the direction they should go and that they're going in the wrong direction. You're the one that they listen to and they realize how much they have lost, what they don't know, and they're edified by the things that you say and the things you do. You're the light of the world. You're the most important people in America today. You're God's people. And while others may put on a nice show, You're the folks who can always call on the throne of God and the mercy of God, the long-suffering and patience of God. And the deal has always been, Christians, that as long as you stand and you fight and you pray you talk to me, then I'll fight with you. Lord said, I'm not going to fight for you. I'm not carrying your standard and fighting your battle. But when you stand, I will stand with you. I'll mention it again tomorrow morning, but the Apostle Paul said in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, when he talked to the brethren, Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. You're not fighting Leroy, Bubba, Cockroach, and Skillet. He said, we don't stand against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And we know just how high that spiritual wickedness goes, don't we? We know because America is suffering from that corrupt culture that has allowed mankind to turn away from God's word and turn within to the beggarly elements of this world, of man's intuitiveness and intelligence, and we are suffering for it as a culture. I know you're a fine minister, and when we're on the campus of a school, I always get nervous when I'm preaching somewhere with with so so much knowledge around me, so I, I have to make sure I know what I'm talking about. 
But I know Solomon said something one time. Solomon said righteousness exalts a nation. But that sin is a reproach. It's a shame to any people. And we as God's people have got to keep that in heart at all times. Understand how important that we are. You'll you give me a signal, won't you? You know I'm a politician and a preacher. <laughs> we'll be up here all night. <laughs> Y'all just leave, okay. When you look at the subjects and the theme of this lectureship, I don't think that the directors and the president and the elders of the church and all who were involved could have thought of anything that was greater and a better discussion that we need to have in America than the Lord uh, talking to us by way of the prophets. Because when we go to the prophets, we see what God had planned for mankind and what God had to do to create redemptive religion, to give us spiritual nomenclature so that we would know what God did to save us. God didn't leave us, we left God. God didn't sin, we sinned. God didn't transgress, we transgressed. God made man, formed him from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. And God didn't make man just a living creature as he had the animals and gave them instinctive motivation. God made man a living soul and gave him intelligence, intuitiveness, and reason, then gave him law and told him what he must do. God was clear and concise in what he did. God is never vague. God says what he means. He means what he says. And Adam and Eve, who he created from the earth, formed man from the dust of the earth. One day he said, of all the things he has said was good, but he looked at man and said, it's not good that man should be alone. Put him in a deep sleep, opened his side, removed a rib from his side, made the woman, placed her at his side, indicating she was not his slave nor his master, but another self. God gave man his divine direction. And God said, of every tree you may eat, you may eat of them all. I give you dominion over the earth. But one, I have one tree that I have forbidden. There is just one prohibition that you don't eat the one that's in the midst. And I'm going to put it in the middle so you can't say I didn't know which one you were talking about. I'm going to put it in the midst, in the middle of the garden. Man violated God's law because of pride. That's why John tells us to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Because all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, of the eye, and the pride of life. That's the devil's perfect trifecta that has worked from the very beginning. He has never failed except for that one time. And the prophets tell us of that one that was going to come, that would overcome the world through the prophets we see God planning redemptive religion. We see the bloodline being developed that will present the Messiah. We see all of this because God created the prophetic office and he placed them there to teach the man and to teach his people. What is prophecy? It is simply defined as all spoken or revealed a written or spoken discourse of God's will and God's word. 
Therefore, a prophet is a human spokesman, a mouthpiece for God, someone through whom God reveals his word, his will, and his way. What God promised Moses, in essence, is the prophetic promise that was from God for him and for Aaron. In the book of Exodus chapter 4 and verses 12, when God called Moses, and he's hearing and hawing about his ability to speak and what I can't do, when God sends you to do something, God's orders are God's empowerments. And he's explaining to God all of his deficiencies and all of his problems because we have a tendency of doing that as human beings. God said to him in verses 12, Now therefore go, go Moses, I will be with thy mouth. You won't stutter and stammer when I'm with you and teach thee what thou shalt say. In verses 15, God says, I will be with thy mouth and with his mouth, speaking of Aaron, and will teach you what you shall do. The prophet is not standing on his own. He's not standing there pro bono, just someone who's making it up as he goes. In essence, God wanted Moses to know, as in this prophetic office that he has created, that really this person is speaking in his behalf. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verses 18, God says, I will raise them up a prophet from among thy brethren like unto thee. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I command him. In essence, God says that the prophet that person speaks for me because he puts it in a human vessel, his word, so that they can deliver it unto their brethren. When we look at this, the definition, the justification of the prophetic office, God also gives the verification of the prophet and the prophecy. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verses 22 as Moses was told, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, is that thing which the Lord has not spoken. But the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid. In other words, don't fear his words because they are not God's words. God says, if I tell you something's going to happen, it's going to happen. If I predict or foretell something, it's going to come to pass. God says you've got a prophet whose word is never coming to pass, then you've got someone who just presumes and someone who is lying and giving false prophecies. God told Jeremiah one time in the book of Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, the Bible says, Then Jeremiah wrote in verses 9, then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. In essence, the prophet, being God's man, could only speak what God wanted him to speak if he was a real prophet. Why? Because God and we are human beings are not on the same level. In the book of Isaiah chapter 55 and verses 8, as every one of you in this room probably can quote, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. I don't care how smart you think you are. God says, my thoughts 
are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. God says my thoughts and my ways are as far above your thoughts and ways as the heavens are above the earth. Jeremiah said again in a very familiar scripture, in the book of Jeremiah chapter 10 and verses 23, Jeremiah said, oh Lord, the weeping prophet said, oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. If our steps are to be directed, if we are to go in the right direction, we need the Lord to guide us. We need the Lord to teach us. We need the Lord to enlighten us because God's word comes from God. And he appointed the prophets. He taught them or put his words in their mouth and sent them to his people. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21, when Peter, before his martyrdom, Peter wanted them to understand, you need to stay with that which is authentic. Stay with that which has come from us. He says, knowing first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation or unloosing. He says, for holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. No man can say, I just didn't know what to do. I just didn't understand God's word. God made sure that the prophets spoke his words, that the prophets were transparent, that they were clear, and that folks could understand for God to be just and merciful and loving and kind, the God who's going to judge every one of us one day. Therefore, this God cannot be confusing. Which is why the Apostle Paul said to the brethren at Corinth that God is not the author of confusion or instability. When we are unstable and don't understand, it was not God that confused us. But man, the devil, wants to confuse us constantly, which is why we return to the word of God. Peter said one time in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 8, Peter said, be sober, be sober, be vigilant, keep your eyes open. Why, Peter? Because your adversary, your opponent, the person trying to lead you into sin, into darkness, into degradation, perversion, into corruption, the person trying to keep you from going to a place he can't go again, heaven, the person who wants you to lose your soul, Peter said, be sober, brethren, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour, or who's not paying attention to the word of God. In essence, brothers and sisters, my topic is what doth the Lord, or what doth God require of thee? What doth the Lord require of thee. I identified this in the book of Micah. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, one of those men that God put his words in his mouth. Micah had a lot of tearful days, I'm sure, just as did Ezekiel and Jeremiah, as did all of the prophets who had to speak to God's people and let them know about the judgment that was going to come. Micah, brothers and sisters, his work 
happened when in the darkest days, in the king, of Ah uh, king Ahaz's days, and also in some of the best days, King Hezekiah. But this man had to write and warn God's people that if you continue to go in the way you're going, that destruction is most certainly going to be the result of it. Some people call the book of Micah, they call it the companion book for Isaiah. But understand something, God never leaves us without guidance. God never leaves us alone. And God always tells us what he desires of us. In the book of Psalms 119 and verses 34, David, the psalmist cried, Give me understanding, and I will keep your law. I shall observe it with my whole heart. In the book of John chapter 4 and verses 12, uh, verses 24 rather, Remember, as Jesus sat there talking to that woman who was confused, she's pointing to a mountain, saying, we kind of worship that mountain, and that's a sacred mountain. And I really don't know how to explain it to you, but I know there's something sacred about that mountain. Jesus wanted her to understand who was standing in front of her. And he let her know in no uncertain terms that there was someone great there was a great majesty and divinity speaking to her that day. And he said to her, God, and all of us need to remember this, God is a spirit, a spirit being. And they that worship him give awe and thanksgiving to him. They that worship him must, a divine injunction, must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is God wants us to love him and worship him but God wants us to follow in his commandments Solomon wanted us to remember in the book of Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and verses 6 Solomon said trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on thine own understanding in all of your ways Solomon said acknowledge him and he will make your path straight when I listen to what the Lord has to say, I don't make mistakes. So Micah talks to God's people in a conversational way. The book, if you read the book, it's like God and the people are having a conversation. And it's in that rhetorical conversation, in that mode, Israel is having a discussion and God tells them what he requires of them. He tells them what he wants from them, just as he does today. Micah's prophecies are mostly warnings. The people would not abandon sin. Instead, they abandon God. And we see that all around us today. We've homogenized and pasteurized and repackaged and remarket sin. We give sin brand new names and we put sin in a different light. And we market and sell sin to the youngest uh, and the most vulnerable of our population. Well, Michael was seeing this. He saw this in God's people. And he called them together. In Micah chapter 1 and verses 5, For the transgression of Judah, the sins of the house of Israel, God sent this prophet to the people. In Micah chapter 1 and verses 9, God says, Basically, you're so wounded so sick, so deeply depraved, 
that I don't think you're curable. What's wrong with you is basically incurable. In Micah chapter 2 and verses 1, God says, Woe unto those of you who devise iniquity. In Micah chapter 6, 4, and 5, God reminded them that I'm the one that brought you out of Israel, and you're bowing down to idols. You pull out a piece of granite or mud or wood, and you make something out of it, and you bow down to it as though it made you. God says, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that turned the sun off when the Egyptians worshipped it. I'm the one that turned the Nile River to blood when they bowed down to the Nile River. God reminded them, I'm the one that saved you. What does God want from us then, the people said, in this rhetorical conversation between God and the people? First thing God says, they say to God, do you want uh, more burnt offerings? God says, no. And you can burn up a thousand rams and it's not going to fix this. You can make rivers of oil and it's not going to fix this, verse 7. You can give your firstborn. You can even give yourself as a sacrifice. And God says, it's not going to fix the breach between us. And when in Micah chapter 6 and verses 8, God said to them, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee. Notice what God said. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. In other words, God says it's time out for styling, smiling, and profiling. God said it's time out for dotting I's and crossing T's and showing up and showing out. God says it's time out for substituting church going for Christianity, ceremony for worship, ritual for religion. God says it's time out for that. I've had enough of your vain oblations. God says I've had enough of empty show of love when you really don't love me. We look at similar words on one occasion in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 10, verses 12 through verses 13, in the re-giving, in the second giving of the law. In the book of Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord thy God, with all thy heart and with all thy soul. On both occasions, God had been just. God had been loving. And he wanted man to just do what he told him to do, to obey him. God gives us blessings. We belong to him. And we need to reverence him. In the book of Acts chapter 17, when the apostle Paul was on Mars Hill, he put it very simply, in him we live. We move and we have our being. What did God want from Israel? God said, I want to see a heart change. I want to see your heart change. I don't want to just see you say stuff to me, burn stuff up in front of me. God says, I want to see a change of heart because God is not impressed with the things we do as an outward show. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verses 7, when the prophet was going to anoint a new king for Israel. 
And as he looked at all of Jesse's fine boys, all of them walking in and, and he's showing off his fine boys, Samuel finally looked at one of his boys, Eliab, and he looked at him and said, Surely, surely I am looking, if you don't mind me paraphrasing, surely I'm looking at the new king of Israel. Surely this boy, of all those you've rejected, surely this one, just think how he would look God, riding down the streets of Jerusalem in a Cadillac chariot with his hair blowing in the wind. Because he's looking at this boy and his stature and his beauty. He wants to choose him on the same criterion that they had chosen Saul. God wanted him to know, no, you chose the one that messed up. I'm going to choose this one. So he said to Samuel, but the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, on the height of his stature, because I have refused him, God said. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God says, I look at the heart. And what God is saying to Israel through Micah, I've looked at your heart through all of your sacrifices, through all of your rituals and ceremonies, and what I require of you is that you change your heart toward me and stop playing with me. And don't you know the prophets gave that message then? And that message goes to the annals of time right into the heart of the blood violence bought institution of the one that the prophets spoke of in Isaiah 53. Of the one and the organization spoke of in Daniel chapter 2. Don't you understand the Lord's looking at each of us today and he's saying the same exact thing. I want you to change your hearts. Paul said to the brethren at Rome in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and verses 2. Paul looked at the hypocrisy that was around him everywhere in Rome. Paul looked at the false teachers, the Judaizing teachers who were going to Philippi and Colossae as this old battered apostle being snake bit, being caned and stoned, jailed, and all that he went through. This old battered preacher said to the brethren at Rome, knowing that there was hypocrisy in the midst of them, just as it was at Ephesus, where he said one time, Of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Paul said, I beseech you. I beseech you. I beg you. I beseech you. I implore you. I beseech you, brethren. By the mercies of God, because of the mercy that God has already given. I beseech you, brethren, that you present your body. Present it. God shouldn't have to beg us for service. Beg us for love. Beg us for piety. Beg us for, for our thanksgiving. Beg us to love him with a true heart, fervently with all of our mind and heart and soul. Paul said, present your body, present it as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. How am I going to do that, Paul? Paul said, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul said, when you change your heart, your life will change. When you change your heart, your behavior will change. 
When you change your heart, your goals will change. Your service will change. Sincerity will be part of your character. You will worry not just about your reputation, but you will understand that God's looking upon your character. I beseech you that you present your body as a living sacrifice. When Paul was speaking to Titus, he had left Titus at Crete. He had left Timothy at Ephesus. Paul understood the hypocrisy that was growing in the church that was going to grip it. And Paul wanted Titus to tell the church what God required of them. Paul said, you tell them that the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men. You're not in the dark. All men teaching us, teaching us, teaching us. That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that's what I require of you. Deny it and worldly lust that you should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Paul said you tell those brethren that God said he's not playing with us. That while you're in this world breathing my good air, drinking my good water, With every beat of your heart and every fiber of your being, you live denying ungodliness. That's what God requires of us. God wants us to be different. When the Hebrew brethren were ready to throw up their hands and run into apostasy, quit, give up. Like many of my brethren across the country today. Oh, it's too hard, they say. All Supreme Court decisions have been made. Oh, who's in the Senate, who's in the Congress, they say. Who's running for president, they say. We've got so many brethren I talk to who are ready like the Hebrew brethren to go into apostasy and give God the excuse of what they can't change because the numbers are just not right. Understand something. When the Hebrew writer wrote those brethren, he didn't write an excuse. He didn't say, oh, yeah, it's hard. I know it's hard out there. Oh, yeah, I know that old Nero tied some of y'all to a tree, covered you with pitch and tar, lit you a fire while you were still alive to light his backyard for his garden. I know that there are, are Christians on crosses up and down the roads of Rome, covered in pitch and tar and lit a fire while they're still alive. I know they're throwing you in the Colosseum. I know you are being beheaded, so I apologize for Jesus for this. And he understands if you want to quit and walk away. No, no, no. That's not what he wrote them. He wrote them when time when you ought to be teachers. You ought to be masters. You ought to be tougher than this. You know what you're fighting for. You should have understood that this was coming. Jesus said, they will hate you because they hated me first. We already knew that. We already knew that the apostle Paul was telling them, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. What does the Lord require of you? The Lord requires of you to stand. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, to stand, God didn't tell you to run from the devil. He told you to put the devil on the run. 
The Lord said, if you resist him, he will flee from you. While we have done what Jesus said in his parabolic teaching, Jesus said, while men slept, an enemy soul tears. While we slept, somebody passed a law that you could kill babies in what ought to be the safest place in the world, his mother's womb. That you can snatch him out like a piece of trash and throw him away. While men slept, God's law has faced assault. The word of God has been thrown out of the marketplace. Little children can't even say a prayer at school anymore. I grew up standing and pledging allegiance to the flag. Praying for my food before I went to the cafeteria. Reading a Bible verse to start the day off in Miss Riley's class, first grade, 1956. But where are we today? While men slept, an enemy has sown tear. Because we didn't stand and fight. Because too many of us capitulated and compromised. Just as the Hebrews were ready to do. The Hebrew writer says, no, no, you cannot quit. You ought to be teachers, masters. You ought to be stronger than you are demonstrating at this present time. How am I doing? Okay. In book of 1 John chapter 1, verses 6, the Lord said, If you say we have fellowship with him, and you walk in darkness, he said, you're just lying. He said, you cannot walk in darkness and have, I will not live in a duplex with the devil. The Lord wants every one of us to understand this. We must expel, we must stand, we must speak. We must let this world know that we're God's children and that we will not compromise, capitulate, or walk away from what is our duty. The Apostle Paul was a good man, and this man who stood, as I said, was shipwrecked, snake bit, came, jailed. This man was stoned, and the only way he survived the stoning was that he pretended that he was dead. But don't you understand that Paul, who had been Saul of Tarshish at one time, and the Lord said, why are you trying to destroy my church? Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Why are you persecuting me? And the Lord said something to let him know what was required of him. He says it's hard to kick against the prick. In essence, what you're doing is fighting what you know is right. You were trained at the feet of Gamaliel in the University of Tarshish. You're the most educated man around. Why in the world would you know better and not do better? Don't you know the Lord is saying the same thing to us? That is required of you in this marketplace, in this time of darkness, for you to be a light. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father in them. You are the salt of the earth. If our communities are rotting and stinking and corrupt and perverted, it's not enough salt. It's our job to savor it so when God goes and smells over our community, it may not be as big as the corruption, but he can smell the sweet savor of love and reverence and thanksgiving and obedience. God says, I will stay my hand 
And don't you know, brothers and sisters, I look all the time and I say to myself, oh, I don't want to see the world that my grandchildren have to grow up in if we don't stand and fight right now. The Apostle Paul walked toward Nero's chopping block. He says, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give not to me only, but all of them that did what was required of them. All that loved his appearance and stood. When you hear what is right, you've heard the greatest story ever told about the greatest life ever lived. That God so loved the world that he sent, gave, commissioned, deployed his only begotten son. That whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world but that the world through him might have life. When you believe that tremendous love of God, because God will not approve you without faith, without faith it's impossible to please him. When you have that faith that's strong, that changes your mind and your heart, your heart, you repent. You say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm not following your son. I am not keeping your word. Lord, I'm sorry because I have not done what was required of me. I confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and I want to bury my old man in a watery grave. Anything dead need burying because I have mortified my old man. Remember something. You're two men. You're the spiritual man. You're the fleshly man. The one you feed will live. The one you starve will die. You feed that spiritual man. That fleshly man gets weaker and weaker and he is mortified, put to death because you will not feed him. And you bury him and rise to walk in the newness of life. If you've fallen away, the Lord has told you what's required. He'll stand behind you all the way and walk with you through the valleys and the shadow of death. Think about it. Have you done what the Lord requires of you? Consider it. While we stay.